the coronavirus outbreak has many companies rethinking their sourcing strategies, assuming they have other places to go. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. The coronavirus pandemic has caused severe disruption to manufacturing in China. Many plants were forced to temporarily close, choking off the supply of all types of products destined for consumers in the U.S. and elsewhere. Might the crisis cause retailers, brands, and distributors to seek other sources of product on a more permanent basis, even the U.S.? And what happens when the recent reason for the disruption of Chinese manufacturing is happening everywhere? That's the topic of my conversation today with Rosemary Coates, Executive Director of the Reshoring Institute and President of Blue Silk Consulting. She returns to the program to discuss whether the pandemic, the U.S.-China trade war, and other trends are spurring a return of manufacturing to the U.S. We'll cover issues of labor availability, the types of goods that are suited for domestic production, and those that aren't. And we'll talk about what the U.S. should be doing to make itself a more attractive location for manufacturers. So here is my conversation with Rosemary Coates. Rosemary Coates, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. We've had a lot of fruitful discussions in the past over the question of reshoring of manufacturing back to the U.S. Today, of course, our perspective is influenced by something a lot more current, and that is the coronavirus epidemic or pandemic, whatever you want to call it. I want to ask you, from your perception, how has the coronavirus got companies rethinking their sourcing strategies? Well, we've been hearing all over the news about the implications for the human race. But in the background, what's happening in supply chains is horrific. With the disruption of manufacturing across China for several weeks after the Chinese New Year, so practically speaking a month or so worth of downtime in the factories and most of the factories not working at full capacity at the moment, what we're going to begin to see or we're seeing already are all kinds of shortages across the supply chain, global supply chains in particular. Most companies have 30 to 60 days of inventory, either on hand or on the water, or they're able to put their hands on it in some way or another. But because of the shutdown of Chinese plants, those parts and finished goods and other things that would be coming our way are not. And so production capability as a result of that around the world is starting to slow down and will come to a halt if manufacturing plants don't have all the parts they need to produce products. Do you lend any credence to the reports that things in China are just beginning to get back to quote-unquote normal? What I know from my contacts in China is, yes, uh, some of the factories are going back to work. and The virus is still alive and infecting people in China, and although the infection rate has slowed down considerably, it's not over yet. Some factories have been authorized to reopen, I would say 50 or 60 percent of those. But because there are not enough workers, a lot of the migrant workers 
did not return after Chinese New Year, or if they return, they're in quarantine for two weeks. So a lot of the manufacturing sites are not operating at full capacity, so maybe 20 25% of capacity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that means there's very little coming out of those plants. We're starting to see things come back online, but it's a relatively slow process. And then, of course, you've got all the transportation issues as well. All the infrastructure at the ports is not online fully yet. And so that's going to cause a buildup in shipments outbound of China. I think we're just beginning to see the results of that now, and I think we're going to be really hurting it by April in terms of shortages around the world. Somebody said the other day, you can't build a car with 99% of the parts. Mm, Yeah, maybe three out of four tires, something like that. Uh, (laughs) Exactly, yeah. uh, The big question, of course, between for this discussion is what impact will this have possibly on reshoring? The question is, though, how can companies shift sourcing when the virus is everywhere? Yeah, it's probably not going to happen immediately. And I'll tell you over time. So I've been in global supply chains for 30 years, doing lots and lots of work in China and so forth. And then 10 or 15 years ago, it was all about chasing the lowest cost production environment, whether that was China or Vietnam or Indonesia or wherever. I think there's been an uptick in sophistication in the last five or six years. Now, executives are seeing the importance of having a strategy around global supply chain. So really thinking about what could you manufacture in the U.S. and why? Will it meet market demand in this area? And what manufacturing should be kept in other locations because it's more appropriate for low-cost environment? So it's really more companies are thinking through their global manufacturing strategies now that I never saw in the past. It used to be just where can we get this made cheaper? And now it's where in the world should we be manufacturing? So that's driven some manufacturing back to the U.S., but it certainly doesn't happen overnight. It's more likely to take 12 to 18 months. <laughs> Here's another thing that people often miss as well. Is we may be helping a company relocate or build a factory in the U.S. or expand their factory here, but the whole supply chain has to come with it. It's not like you can snap your fingers and say, okay, now we're going to manufacture in the U.S. You may have all of your supply base in Asia, and you have to work to either identify new suppliers in the U.S. or ask your suppliers to locate in the U.S. This is expensive, time-consuming. It's just not that easy. Yeah, the establishment of so-called supplier campuses around manufacturing sites in order to get parts to the line quickly, I guess that is an important thing. If I can take you back in time, though, to the pre-coronavirus crisis, which seems so long ago, but it's only a few months... Back then, there was already the the trade war, and tariffs were impacting importers and exporters quite heavily. Notwithstanding the conclusion of the so-called Phase 1 trade pact between the U.S. and China, was there already some rethinking underway among companies about reshoring as a result of that, even before 
this virus hit the world. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm also a licensed customs broker. And although I don't have a brokerage firm of my own, I do a lot of import-export work and have over many years. Several of my clients came to me and said, help us. We're now having to pay 25% on imported parts. And so in some cases, we filed protests. But in other cases, we evaluated the total cost of production. Hopefully, the decision was to source locally to avoid those tariffs and be able to continue to manufacture or start manufacturing in the U.S. In other cases, like I have a client in Minneapolis that has a family-owned business and he's been manufacturing for 50 years there. And one of the parts, a critical part for their product was made in China and nowhere else. So only China, that was the only supply source. We helped them file a petition to try to get the tariff reduced, but it was not approved. I was on the phone with the CEO, and he said, we're going to have to pick up operations and move somewhere else out of the U.S. because we cannot afford a 25% increase in the cost of our product. And so they actually laid off 200 people in Minneapolis and moved to the Philippines. Wow. That's a really sad story. Yeah, I mean, it has really the opposite effect of what was intended by the application of the tariffs, but caused lots of manufacturers to rethink what's going on and make decisions based on trying to stay in business and turn a profit. Well, it seems to make sense not to rely on a single source, but I would imagine that a number of companies just don't have the luxury of being able to practice diversified sourcing for a critical part like that. You've got to get it from one place, and in this case, it was China, right? Yeah, and over 20 years or so, China has become so sophisticated in manufacturing that they have built capabilities that are just not available anywhere else. If you think about electronics, for example, most electronics are made in the Pearl River Delta area in China, which is Guangzhou, Dongguan, Xinjiang, just east and north of Hong Kong. In that region, they've developed these electronics manufacturing capabilities that we just didn't develop anywhere else in the world. It was inexpensive. It was clustered there. That's where stuff was made. It's fine to say, okay, now I think we should bring manufacturing back or move to another country or because of the tariffs, we're going to go somewhere else. But the capability for manufacturing those products is not established in many of these areas. And that doesn't just happen overnight either. You have to develop new suppliers, not only locate them, but develop new suppliers and oftentimes teach them how to manufacture your product going to take a while before they get up to quality standards. It's far more complicated than what we hear on the news or what the politicians have to say. Are there any ways in which the U.S. recently has become a more attractive location for manufacturing, not just because of the negative aspects of other countries, but because of positive aspects of manufacturing here? Well, yes. There are certain things that have helped fuel consideration regarding manufacturing in the U.S. The tax cuts in 2017 allowed companies, or the intention was to allow companies to make capital investment in the U.S. So that's The intention. Implant. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, didn't really happen that much. So most companies bought back their stock or 
invested in other ways and not necessarily capital investment. But it certainly helped. I mean, that was one area of consideration that helped to drive down costs. So that's one. Lifting some of the environmental laws. I live in California. I'm all for a green environment and sustainability. But some of the laws were really onerous and probably too heavy-handed to promote production. So some of those laws, environmental laws, were lifted, and I think that was a good thing in many cases. Those two things have helped some, certainly stem the tide of going overseas, but not necessarily had the bountiful expectation that all the manufacturing was going to suddenly come back to the U.S. I think that idea is a little old-fashioned. Not going to happen. I mean, we're in a global economic environment, and it's not going to change in the future. Well, even though you're executive director of the Reshoring Institute, it has never been your argument that 100% of manufacturing can go back to the United States. I, I think you've called for more balance on that. But your answer to the next question, I suspect, would have been much, much different if I'd asked it just a few weeks ago. And that is, do we have the workforce here in the U.S.? If I'd asked it at a time when the economy was humming along great with 3% unemployment and the like, you might have said one thing. But now we're at the verge of dropping into economic freefall for some time. And I'm wondering how does that change the picture in terms of worker availability to increase manufacturing here at home? That's yet another issue of, of uh, moving forward in the future. Yes, obviously we'll have lots of people available, but whether or not they have the right skills is a question. Manufacturing 50 years ago, in 1950 or 60, was all about low-skilled labor and just doing work. In today's environment, manufacturing is really high-tech. It involves the use of computers, the use of a lot of robotics, the use of computerized programs and skills for making molds and tools and dyes. And so these are things and skills that are somewhere between the old-fashioned blue-collar and an engineer. And so we, we call those new-collar jobs because you have to have some crossover skills if you're working in manufacturing today. And that's usually computer skills. It may be some robotic skills. It may be a different kind of environment where you have to apply mathematics sometimes. And there's a lot of math and manufacturing, a lot of geometry that's used. The skills are different. And so even though we may have a high unemployment rate after this virus is finished, they may not be employable people for manufacturing jobs that are available. They wouldn't be the same people. You would take them off of the assembly line, suddenly train them to become more sophisticated with this type of skills and put them back to work. It might be a different group of people then, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I think we may be trying to solve the wrong problem. So it's not that we just need more people. We need more skilled manufacturing people. The problem really is training and teaching skills that are required, not looking for warm bodies. And I imagine the factory of the present, indeed the factory of the future, will look something quite different from what it used to be in the heyday of American manufacturing, too, just in terms of its footprint, the type of machines are there, the type of stuff that's turned out. Maybe there's going to be 3D printing. Maybe there's going to be almost complete automation. So we're looking at a different animal completely, right, potentially? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So my grandfather worked at uh, Hazy Taylor in Warren, Ohio. It's a 
drinking fountain manufacturer. He, he was a metal worker. And I can remember him coming home from work, and he was smelly and sweaty and dirty, and <laughs> it was disgusting, right? But that's not what manufacturing is like anymore. I mean, you're more likely to be running a computer all day long, checking quality or something like that. I mean, it's a stark difference in skills and in what manufacturing looks like today. Well, clearly this country cannot sit by passively and just hope and wait for manufacturing capability to come back for whatever reason beyond our ability to to influence it. So what must the U.S. do to make itself a more attractive location for manufacturing on the political front, on the technology front, on the business front? What has to happen? There's no silver bullet. So we want to continue to work on a focus on manufacturing. It's really backbone of economies around the world, including ours. So even though manufacturing is down in the low teens in terms of the overall economy in the U.S. right now, so I think it represents uh, about 12 or 13 percent of the economy, it's still the backbone and has the highest return rate and the highest magnifier rate of any other industry. And by that, I mean you put a factory worker to work at a decent middle-class wage, that worker goes home at night and they go out to dinner with his family and maybe put their kids in college and buy a big screen TV. It has this big economic magnifier effect. Rebuilding manufacturing in the U.S. is really important and it's a step-by-step process. So certainly tax benefits to give us a level playing field around the world for U.S. manufacturing versus other countries have low tax rates for manufacturing. The environmental issues, another thing, focus on skills. What we want to come back is advanced manufacturing. So we want skilled manufacturer people or manufacturers, and we want a work environment that's different. It's advanced manufacturing, the use of lots of machines, robotics, 3D printing, and so forth. We don't want the 23 cent an hour t-shirt production back. That belongs in a low-cost country. And the reason why is that we don't pay a living wage, and I mean a, a strong middle-class wage in manufacturing. What happens is we create a welfare state because we have to supplement people's incomes in different ways. So we're really aiming for a higher level of manufacturing, pays a living wage, it's focused on the local customer base, so you want to manufacture locally for the local environment and build manufacturing that way in the U.S., not just let's bring a bunch of factories back and try to do yeah. it here. Well, let's hope that the decent middle-class wage doesn't go the way of the old-fashioned factory. Rosemary, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, and thank you so much for spending time with us and catching up on the world of manufacturing and the possibility of reshoring back to the U.S. Thank you very much for being with us. Yeah, thank you, Bob. It's my pleasure. That was my conversation with Rosemary Coates of the Reshoring Institute, talking about the prospects for a return of manufacturing to the U.S. We're online at www.splychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.